Will you pray with me? Father, we are here and we are present, and we ask that you teach us by your Spirit to fall in love with your Son. We give everything that we have to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Quick story to begin our time this morning. If you look at the picture behind me, um, these are my two sons, Noah and Isaac. Uh, This was taken by my mom when she was babysitting them a couple of weeks ago. They are in Noah's room, and they are playing church. That's right. Pray for us. Um, They've taken their matching chairs. They've put them on their backs, and they are using them as a pulpit because they are preaching. Um, At the same time, which I'm sure was difficult for my mom to follow. Now... Those of you who have spent any time around children know that it's not always this calm and peaceful. Children are children, correct? Um, And they're adorable, and they're funny when they're up here this morning singing, waving at you parents and grandparents, picking their noses, whatever. But the reality is, at some point, even probably today, you'll have a difficult time remembering how adorable they can be. I say all this um, because the way I sometimes relate to my children has exposed a wrong view that that I have had about God. Let me explain. Um, Before my children were born, I thought I had a fairly healthy view of God, right? I checked all the major boxes, However, at some point over the past couple of years, God has used my children to point out that I was missing a very crucial part of his character. I began to realize that when my children were not behaving in a way that I would consider to be ideal, my response to them was not one that would reflect a belief in a loving and compassionate God a loving and compassionate Heavenly Father. At times, my attitude and response to them was, and sadly still sometimes is, one of annoyance, one of being sinfully disappointed in them, and one that sometimes uses a tone that does not promote maturity and growth for them, but instead condemnation and shame. Now, some of this is me just living in a fallen world as a sinful human being and as a sinful father. However, through much conversation and prayer, God ever so gently pointed this out to me. That I was parenting my children like I believed God was parenting me. That my responses to them, responses of annoyance, that they were an inconvenience at times and so on, was how I subconsciously thought God responded to me in my brokenness and in my imperfection and in my sin. 
Instead of believing that, that God was meeting me in my brokenness with compassion and a desire for me to change, I believed he was inconvenienced by it and that he didn't want anything to do with it. And so I treated my children that way at times because somewhere deep down inside, that's how I believed God was treating me. To put it simply, for the sake of this morning, I was not approachable because I believed that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit was not approachable. I would have never said that this was true of me because it wasn't true of me intellectually. In my head, I knew otherwise, but my actions revealed the truth. I thought I had to have my life together in order for God to be pleased with me. And subconsciously, I was living in fear of him. Not in a healthy, reverent fear, but in a fear that is the response of not believing that God is good and gracious. During this time, about a year ago now, I was asked to do a thought experiment. My friend said this, think about the story of Peter denying Jesus. Peter's warming himself around the fire and he denies knowing Jesus for a third time. And then, right after the rooster crows, Luke writes this, quote, The Lord, Jesus, turned and looked at Peter. And my friend paused and he asked me this, What do you think was the expression on Jesus' face when he looked at Peter. I was speechless. And unfortunately, my answer to that question was revealed by the look on my face when my children mess up. Your answer to that question will also reveal a lot. This morning, I hope to show you this. It's very, very simple. Jesus is approachable. Jesus is approachable. He cares for you and he loves you. Open up to Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5, page 840 in your pew Bible. I want to primarily focus on one story uh, in order to illustrate the approachability of Jesus this morning. Okay, so Mark chapter 5, starting in verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, Quote, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25, and there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years, the same age as Jairus' daughter and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had, but was no better, but rather grew worse. 
She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, verse 34, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Let's go back and work through the passage verse by verse. Okay, so first we learn that a man named Jairus, okay, had a daughter, has a daughter who is at the point of death, and he wants Jesus to heal her. Okay, so Jesus agrees and begins to make his way towards his house with a great crowd. And look at verse 25. 25 and 26. And there was a woman who had had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had but was no better but rather grew worse. This woman, okay, had experienced bleeding or hemorrhaging for 12 years. 12 years. And because of this, because of the culture of her day, she was not only ceremonially unclean by Jewish law, but she was also socially unclean. She was an outcast. She was looked down upon. One scholar notes this, quote, By the very law of her people, if she was married, she was divorced from her husband and could not live in her home. She was ostracized from all society and must not come in contact with her old friends. She was excommunicated from the services of the synagogue and thus shut out from the women's courts in the temple. She wasn't just a nobody in society. She was intentionally shunned. Has this ever been your story? In what ways have you been shunned? You come in here this morning, and, and in what ways have you been an outcast? Maybe in school, maybe in your own family, or even worse, maybe in this very, very church. Jesus welcomes the outcasts. He welcomes those on the margin of society. And he welcomes you just like he's about to welcome this woman in Mark chapter 5. Okay, but first, to make matters worse for this woman, we read that she spent all that she had on physicians and didn't improve but actually got worse. Okay, during Jesus' day, it wasn't like the medical system we have today, but during Jesus' day, physicians and local Jewish rabbis, they would create these different concoctions and remedies for a woman like this to try to be healed. Okay, they were not cheap, and for her, they didn't work. 
And so now, not only is she an outcast because of her bleeding and her condition, but she's also broke. However, the good news for her is she is about to have an interaction with God himself that will change her life forever. Look at verse 27. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Okay, she hears about Jesus. Okay, she's heard a lot about what he's doing. Um, and she approaches him and she touches his garment. That may be weird for some of us, like to go up and touch somebody's clothing. Uh, but she believes that this would be enough to heal her. Because if you read in Matthew 14, uh, it's, there's a verse that says, People who touch the fringe of Jesus' garment were made well. And so this was something that was happening, and she would have heard this, and so now she wants her turn. And then in verse 29, she touches his garment. She feels the flow of blood dry up, and Jesus senses that power has left him. And so he searches for the person who touched him. Now, this is me personally. I am of the belief that Jesus, in fact, knew who touched him. Okay, and he wasn't asking the question for his own benefit. And if I'm correct in that speculation, the question is, why embarrass her? Why call her out? Why not just let her be healed and go on with her life? I think he was asking the question first for the sake of the woman, but secondly for the sake of her community. Okay, so first, the woman. Jesus wants this woman to know that she was, in fact, healed. If he chooses not to have an interaction with her, does she doubt her healing at some point in the future? Or does she place her hope and her faith in the garment and tassel of Jesus rather than in Jesus himself? I think he wants to acknowledge her healing by having a conversation with her that will quite possibly do more for her than just her physical healing. And then secondly, her community. I believe that Jesus wants to have a conversation with this woman in front of everyone around them so that they know that she is, in fact, healed. Remember, she is shunned by the very people that she's currently surrounded by. It's safe to assume that they didn't realize that she was in their presence because of all the commotion of Jairus' daughter. Otherwise, they would have most likely shouted unclean and told her to leave. However, she's there. And not only does Jesus heal her, but he is about to announce to the whole world that she is, in fact, healed. But before he says anything to her, we read this in verse 33. And she comes to Jesus in fear and trembling. And she fell down before him and told him the whole truth. Imagine 12 years of bleeding. Relationship and relationship broken because of her condition. Who knows where she was living, how she was getting money to buy food. The past 12 years is one of misery and confusion. And then, in the matter of an instant, she 
is healed. Now she has to be thinking if she can just get out of there, no one knows she's good to go. But instead, Jesus calls her out. And she's terrified and she falls at the feet of Jesus. Let me just say, if, if you're here this morning and you're struggling, and if you're terrified, if you have fear welling up inside of you, if you're at the end of your rope, there is no place left to turn in your life. The feet of Jesus is a great place to be. The woman found herself there, and Jairus, Jairus was there just a few verses before, both in complete desperation. And Jesus, after hearing her story, Jesus says this, daughter. Daughter. Fun fact, uh, this is the only time that Jesus calls anyone daughter in all of the Gospels. Daughter. A gentle word, a a tender word, a compassionate word, a word that gives off that Jesus is approachable, no matter your condition. He says, daughter, your faith has made you well. I think he also wanted to interact with her to acknowledge her faith. That she believed that, she, that God and, and that Jesus was powerful enough to heal and that he was also good. That he actually wanted her healed. I was talking about this with Doug this week and he said this, quote, When our faith meets his compassion, we have an approachable God. And Jesus ends with this, go in peace and be healed of your disease. She leaves healed, she leaves with peace, she leaves with a new life ahead of her. Jesus is approachable. And he's not just approachable to this woman and to the people that lived 2,000 years ago. We believe he is still approachable today because we believe that he is still alive today and that his character remains the same. He pursues us, he pursues you, and he invites you to come and to be healed and to be made new. So if, if any of this is true, where do we go from here? I could be wrong. But I wonder if many of us don't believe that Jesus is approachable because we don't actually believe that Jesus loves us. I know that may sound crazy because a lot of us do believe it to be true in our heads. We can quote verses, we can even teach on Jesus' love but I wonder if our actions prove otherwise. I want to share this story with you. This, this quote is from a podcast interview of a young pastor who uh, struggled with sexual sin. He was asked about his uh, very candid vulnerability in his most recent book. In the interview, when asked about his struggle, he said this, quote, I think there were some real practical helps that I was given through wise people that really served me. And I think I did all the obvious things. I had people that knew the depths of my brokenness and the specifics. I had accountability. I confessed regularly and specifically. All of those things. 
And then some mentors gave me some helpful tools to how to combat temptation. But ultimately, the thing that led to victory for me is wildly unsatisfying when I share it with people because it was simply this. I actually began to believe that God loved me in the midst of my utter and consistent and repeated failure. And somehow that began to loosen the grip of temptation on me. And I cannot explain it. But somehow when I began to experientially believe in the grace of God and the forgiveness of God, the grip of sin seemed less tight. End quote. What's keeping you from believing that God is approachable and that God actually loves you? That he does indeed want what's best for you. Not as you would define it necessarily, but as he would define it. If it's not a physical ailment like the woman in Mark 5, is it quite possibly your sin? If so, let me propose to you that there is a better way. First, if you struggle with pride that manifests in an unwillingness to sacrifice, the good life is found in following Jesus of Nazareth who laid down his life for us. If you struggle with greed or envy, wanting more and more and wanting what others have, the good life is found in Jesus' statement that says this, quote, it is better to give than to receive. If you struggle with laziness or apathy, the good life is found with the revelation that you have one life to live, that you are made in the image of God and that Jesus has a specific purpose for your life. If you struggle with sexual sin, the good life is found in believing that God is good and that he alone ultimately satisfies. If you struggle with control that manifests itself in anger, The good life is found in surrender to our king who is actually in control. If you struggle with shame from your past, the good life is found in confession and vulnerability with someone you trust because freedom is found on the other side. And lastly, if you struggle with striving for the approval of others or of God, And you're just exhausted. The good life is found in the Father's words to the Son at his baptism that say, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Regardless of your sin this morning, Jesus is approachable because Jesus loves you. And this is important. I want to make this note. He loves you in a way where he doesn't want you to remain in your life of sin. In John chapter 8, when Jesus talks to the woman who was caught in adultery, he tells her to go and leave her life of sin. Go and sin no more. And he tells us the same. And it's possible. That's why I'm up here this morning. Because of the nativity scene that we celebrate this time of year that we just heard about And because of the cross and the empty grave, we celebrated Easter. 
You are forgiven of your sin. And you are free from your sin. And so if you identify with any of this, and you're like me, and you may be realizing, yeah, I don't really know if I, if I actually do believe that Jesus loves me. I want to invite you into a simple reading plan this week. Um, it's in your bulletin, and, it, and it's on the screen as well. I've included five passages for you to read. They're all with Jesus interacting with someone and displaying his approachability and his love towards them in the midst of their brokenness. And I want to, it, they're not long passages, so I want to really, really encourage you guys to read it slowly and to read them two or three times and simply ask God to show you his love. Ask him to highlight a specific verse or a phrase from the passage. And as always, it's just an invitation. But if you're like me and, and you need to more fully realize God's love that then leads to repentance and leads to obedience, join me in reading this week. Jesus is approachable. He always has been and he always will be. And so approach him and let him heal you. To close, will you please stand with me? We're going to read uh, the first nine verses of Psalm 136. Okay, it's a psalm that reminds us that God's love has been around from the beginning and will also endure forever. Okay, it's a responsive reading. I will read the beginning of each verse, um, and then you will respond with his faithful love endures forever. Sound good? All right. Psalm 136, verse 1. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Give thanks to the God of gods. Give thanks to the Lord of lords. Give thanks to him who alone does mighty miracles. Give thanks to him who made the heavens so skillfully. Give thanks to him who placed the earth among the waters. Give thanks to him who made the heavenly lights. The sun to rule the day. And the moon and stars to rule the night. Let's pray. God, you are so good. And your faithful love does endure forever. So I pray that we as a people made in the image of God, and for those of us who are following you as children of you, that we would believe that you do love us because it is true. And I pray that that realization would set us free from our sins, that we would confess and repent and live a life following you. So God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the children, the joy that that brings to our hearts. We love you, Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.